0: On the show today, Connor Kehoe, senior advisor and former senior partner at McKinsey. And with us is, of course, also Rainier Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. Today, we'll talk about sustainable reporting and what that really is. So, Connor, I'm uh, curious, what is the one question that you care about the most today and why?
1: Well, Vesna, I think the biggest question on my mind today is intergenerational equity. Are the older age groups, such as mine, paying enough attention to the needs, the future needs of their children, their grandchildren? And also, are younger age groups doing enough to use the political system? Are they voting? Um, they're definitely agitating in corporations, but are they out there influencing politicians enough so that their needs are heard? Intergenerational
0: thinking is really, really important. But as you know, it's often very present in good private firms, but maybe less so in, in public companies. So, w- what is your advice to leaders of corporations? You know, how should they best react to this pressure from the millennials and the top down pressure from the investment institutions?
1: Well, on the one hand, they definitely need to think about the long term prosperity of their corporations. So, they need to pay attention as to how they attract the next generation of employees and the next generation of consumers. So there's no contradiction there. They do need to do that. At the same time, I do have sympathy for them because sometimes they're under pressure to become moral agents and they're not really very well qualified to do that. Uh, I have a friend who's a chairman of a large public corporation in the United States. The United States had a change in voting laws in Georgia, the state of Georgia, which tended to restrict the opening hours of certain booths which was going to disadvantage poorer people. And he was under huge pressure to come out and make a statement about this and do something about it. As he said to me, I'm no expert in voting laws anywhere in the United States, Never mind the state of Georgia. Should I do something about this? So that was one. And then the other one, of course, is what do large corporations do about abortion rights in the United States for their female employees? How do they react? Are they supposed to do something and make a political statement or not? Most of them are choosing to act discreetly. Real dilemmas.
2: I would just add, I mean, this is in our self-interest. Business is not going to succeed in a society that fails.
1: Absolutely, yeah. A society does need to work, and they need that context. And within that, then, they need to be attractive to future generations.
2: And today,
0: a lot of corporate executives, they absolutely agree that longer time horizons for business decisions would improve performance. And still, half of them say that they would delay any kind of value-creating projects if it could mean missing the quarterly earnings targets. I mean, this is a question we've had on the table for a long while, but what's the way to resolve this, do you think, Connor?
1: Well, the best mechanisms I've seen so far are, first of all, just talk about the long term and act in the long term, because what tends to happen is you then shed or lose the investors who are more short-termist in nature, and that reduces the pressure on you to act in the short term. So in a funny way, by being long-term, you select long-term investors. If you start to behave in a short-term manner, the pressure only ratchets up because you attract short-term investors. And then the second action I would suggest is that they engage their board members, their non-executive directors more. There's good evidence that non-executive directors who don't really understand the company are much more attentive to the short-term worries of Wall Street or the City of London, and they bring that back into the boardroom. You can balance this out if you've got your non execs sufficiently engaged so that they understand how the company operates and its needs and its reactions. So those would be my top two actions for public company boards. Of course, in private equity, it's quite different. There is less short-term quarterly pressure. But public company boards, so the two messages are select your investors and engage
2: your non-execs.
0: So Rainier, do you have in your private equity sphere of companies, do you still have issues around the short-term agenda Sometimes
2: I think that's a a general issue, not only for our companies, but sometimes for myself as well. There's always these short-term fires that you have to attend to. Sometimes the difference between what is urgent and what's important are in conflict. So yes, there are always short-term priorities. And that's why in our companies, the way we facilitated is that in the whole strategy session we start in the future. So we ask all of our, uh, our management teams to reimagining their sector, industry in a net zero circular uh, economy, whether that's twenty forty or twenty thirty or twenty fifty. So really starting there, getting their imagination. So how does the future look? And then we roll that back and see how do we get from here to there. I mean that's the theory of change. In the beginning, when we were starting Summa and with our first companies, we started in the other end. What are our key priorities for the next three years, over the next five years, and then for the long term? And what we saw was we, we were always ending up in this linear development. You know, we want to increase market share in the local market. You know, then we want to go and be a Nordic for the company, and then we want to go and be European. Well, that to me isn't really thinking about the transition that needs to happen. That's a very linear growth plan. So, we forced them to start in, in the future. We set off time and we have a facilitation of, of how to do it. And that has been uh, hugely valuable also to myself and how we have done that in, in Summa, thinking about the future.
0: Great advice from both of you. Connor, for most of your career, you've worked at McKinsey. What are your most important insights and, and lessons learned there?
1: Well, McKinsey helps. Corporations with strategy, with organization, with operations. So when you asked the question, I thought about, well, what are the insights from each of those? I think on strategy, what I've learned over the years is the importance of collective action while at the same time having tolerance of mavericks. By that, I mean, I started out when I did strategy studies in my 20s and 30s, wanting to have the right answer. I then progressed to realizing that a good answer that everyone's behind is probably a little bit more powerful. And I've gotten to a stage now where an answer that everyone's behind is more powerful than anything else, because people can learn if they're going in the wrong direction, as long as they're doing it collectively, they can readjust. If they're not doing something collectively, they really don't learn anything at all. At the same time as having a common direction that people agree on, you do have to tolerate mavericks. Rainier and I were involved in setting up McKinsey's private equity practice about 22 years ago. I know he looks too young for that, but it's true. (laughs) Um, And at the time, our colleagues thought we were crazy. But McKinsey, which isn't perfect, was tolerant enough of maverick actions to allow something to happen, which is now over 20% of their activity. So on strategy, it's have a collective agreed set of actions, which at a minimum you learn from but tolerate mavericks. The second thing I think on strategy is the importance of good decision-making. I've worked a lot with Danny Kahneman, who's a wonderful psychologist who was granted the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on how people make decisions. And the main insight that comes from his work is that good process is really important in decision-making, but that it's much less satisfying for human beings than intuition. So a lot of it is about doing something we find dissatisfying, repressing intuition, and going through good process, which you'll see at investment committees and private equity firms, as Summa included. So that's on strategy. On organization, uh, what I've learned is that really purpose and culture are key, and shareholder value is the happy outcome of good purpose, culture, and strategy. So purpose and culture are key in organization. And then I guess in operations over the years, what's happened is that bottom-up ideas have been huge in helping improve processes. They've come from Toyota in Japan. You do need top-down redesigns every so often because paradigms shift. And more recently, the predominance of software in the development of goods and services means a new way of developing new products. You can do a minimum viable product in software, try it out, see if it works. I'm an old software engineer. I used to do that 40 years ago. So that has changed the way people innovate. So those, I suppose, are the main lessons have a collective action, tolerate Mavericks, make decisions through process, even if it feels less satisfying, be very clear in purpose and culture, and combine bottom-up ideas with, in the software era, a lot of trial and error as you develop new products.
2: It's funny, Connor, that you mentioned that we worked together for quite many decades in the private equity practice of McKinsey, and, and I'm thrilled uh, you know, now to be on, on the podcast uh, and also working a bit with you on uh, sustainability and, and impact, because you have really moved. Uh, we both, although we haven't been that much in contact over the years, we have gone sort of in parallel tracks, and you were actually a bit earlier than I was on thinking about uh, sustainability and the future. It would be great if you just tell a little bit about your journey and also focusing capital on the long term and how you ended up with impact investing and also sustainability reporting.
1: Well, I suppose the classic tag for sustainability up to recently was ESG. And private equity got me interested in G. Private equity seemed to have a longer term perspective than the large public companies I was dealing with. It was able to think about companies usually over between five and 10 years because when a PE firm is buying a company... It knows it's going to own it for five years, and it knows it's going to probably sell it to somebody who needs to look five years out. So it starts out thinking about 10 years in the back of its mind. That may shrink to five as it gets closer to exit. But that's a much longer-term concern than public companies might have. Too many of them are dominated by quarterly or half-yearly earnings. Um, So together with a colleague, Don Barton, we thought this was an important topic, and we set up a think tank called Focusing Capital on the Long Term. You can see we're not very good snappy branders. And we were fortunate that uh, Larry Fink at BlackRock took an interest in it and and brought it to higher heights. And it's still going strong as an organization that researches how to make large public corporations think longer term. And that is what got me and indeed my friend Dom into sustainability reporting. It was because we thought this was a way to nudge companies to think longer term. If they're reporting on uh, sustainability topics, it forces them to think about the long term. So after Dom, I chaired the Integrated Reporting Council, which advocates for a narrative at the front of the annual report that's integrated as between financials and sustainability, which as you can imagine, forces the board to think about these two topics and how they interact. Investors, by the way, tell me the way they use it. It's always interesting to hear how investors use things, is they don't read it first good investors tend to do the numbers first themselves so that they're not biased by the narrative. And Professor Kahneman will tell you one of the quickest ways to get your mind biased is to get a narrative into your head. So the good ones do the numbers first, and then they read the integrated report or the narrative to judge the quality of the board's thinking so that they may get some information out of it, but it's actually a way of judging board thinking quality. Anyway, my mission in doing that was twofold. One was to try and encourage this narrative to be published more broadly, um, this integrated report, but at the same time to try and rationalize this very confusing sector of voluntary sustainability reporting. And so we did manage to merge the Integrated Reporting Council with SASB, which was the leading provider of standards for sustainability, standards being very precise definitions of metrics, of numbers, sustainability numbers that should be published. And the two of those we've just merged into the IFRS, the International Financial Reporting System to become their sustainability reporting arm, which is called the ISSB, International Sustainability Standards Boards. So I'm very pleased with where it ended up, and this world is now rationalizing around the ISSB within the IFRS. The EU via EFRAG is also, uh, has just ended its consultation period on its standards that it will require EU companies to report on. And the SEC has also consulted over the summer on the climate metrics it was just to report on and there is good commonality between the three. It could be better, but there's pretty good commonality. The major difference being the EU being a political entity is also asking for reporting on topics that are of less relevance to investors. The SEC and the IFRS, their mandate comes from Stock Exchange Commission mandates, which is focused on investor materiality, as it's called. And um, my next interest in that world is to try and rationalize a little bit the impact accounting world and i think this is important because the world of sustainability is a world of kpis and if you talk to lps as they're called very big investors they say things to you like i'm in the middle right now of trying to report to my uh, beneficiaries on sustainability please tell me connor how do i add up a percentage point of diversity with a ton of carbon and the truth is you can't add it up and it's very inconvenient because then you can't compare it either Nor can you compare the output with the dollar's cost to an organization to make whatever that output is happen. So, impact reporting allows you to translate these KPIs into dollars or euros or crowns so that you have a common metric that allows you to add things up and allows you also to compare the cost of achieving them with the value of the output in a common currency. So, I'm now with a few others seeing if we can come to one set of standards that would translate. This, the KPIs into dollars and euros, etc. So that's what I'm up to on impact.
2: Uh, that's fantastic. And, and as you know, Connor, Summa has uh, now reported using the impact with accounts where we have monetized the externalities on the environmental side and on the employment side. And for a couple of our companies, we've also done it on the product side, but there's more work that is needed on the product side. But I'm absolutely thrilled that things are moving this fast and how you were able to get integrated reporting, SASB, and now into IFRS, and that you, we're getting some standards on it. A couple of uh, questions around that. I've been worried that the uh, ESG reporting and sustainability reporting are too broad and complex. There's too many things, and some of them might not be, be material to the business you're in. And then the second worry I've had is that we're putting the threshold too low. So it's been focusing on sort of risk and do no harm rather than measuring the true uh, outcomes and externalities that companies create. What's your perspective on that?
1: Well, on materiality for the business, it's always tricky. The SASB standards have the merit of being specialized by industry, which gets you a little bit closer to making sure that they're more relevant for the companies involved. It was actually quite mental change for the accounting people, to think that way, because they're used to having the same financial standards for all organizations. They may have slightly different rules depending on which industry you're in, but they're not used to by industry financial standards. So it took a bit of convincing to get them on side for per industry sustainability standards. But I think that helps at least, Rainier, deal with the materiality issue. It doesn't solve it, but it does help. Whether or not the metrics themselves address outcomes, by and large, sustainability i think does a reasonable job at addressing outcomes for the production process but actually doesn't apart from maybe scope 3 emissions doesn't do much on product impact and it never really set out to do it i mean there is no dictionary definition but my sort of shorthand definition is sustainability or esg is about the production process The one exception perhaps being scope 3 and then impact goes further. It takes the production process and the impact of the product. So it's really only when you get into impact accounting or impact investing that you start to think about this other dimension, which is not just how sustainably am I producing the product, but how sustainable is this product for the population and the planet that it's being delivered to? And that's
2: why you can be a sustainable tobacco company and a sustainable oil company. You can. I mean, and hats off to the oil
1: company that produces oil while burning less oil to produce oil which yeah. is the case you know there is some that are much better than others but it doesn't solve the bigger problem of the impact that oil has once it's out there in the marketplace the big challenge is that in fact most of these standards require something new of corporations they require them to reach back into their supply chain and get metrics out of their supply chain which honestly they don't have to do for financial reporting all they need is an invoice from a supplier and then they're more or less there As far as financial reporting is concerned. But when it comes to carbon reporting or understanding diversity practices within the supply chain, they have to reach into their suppliers and their suppliers' suppliers to report truthfully and completely. That's tough because a lot of these companies are small and medium enterprises, and the reporting burden on them could become a bit overwhelming. But if it's required of the big companies, it's probably required along the supply chain. And indeed, even if the company involved the small company is not a supplier to a big company if it's borrowed from a bank the banks do have to report as well so the only small companies that will not have to report will be those that aren't in a supply chain and haven't borrowed money from a bank so i worry a little bit about the pressures that will be on SMEs uh, as this new reporting comes into place
2: and many of our companies are both in the EU and they report according to IFRS and you said that that is different standard so do we have to report in one way for those that are part of the EU, and then in another way, if they're also part of the I- uh, reporting according to IFRS. Well, I'm hopeful that what will happen,
1: and I am an optimist by nature, Rainer that what will happen is that the investor material side of reporting will be pretty similar as between the EU and the IFRS, and then what the EU calls the civil society material aspects That'll be the EU's own stuff the IFRS won't ask for that because it's really not entitled to stray beyond investor material reporting. So that's what I'm hoping that there'll be a lot of overlap on the investor material side and then there'll be this increment called civil society material that the EU will want to have as well, because the EU is a political organization, not an investor serving only organization. That being said, I I should also say, Rainer, that over time, I've noticed the difference between these two aspects of sustainability reporting diminish. Because if you're a bad actor on some civil society metric, you soon get called out, especially by Gen Z and millennials. And then they maybe won't buy your product or won't join your company. And that very quickly becomes investor material. So the distance between the two is shrinking.
2: Do you see the you know SEC, IFRS, EU coordinating and it becoming sort of a common standard? Who is at the forefront of these three uh, entities? So the investor community and
1: the corporate community are all pretty clear. They would love one global set of standards that are mandatory and assured. And the investors want it to be mandatory, obviously, because that way they get the numbers from everybody every year. And interestingly enough, many of the corporations, the better behaved corporations, want it mandatory so that everyone has to report, not just me because I'm a good citizen. I report, but then my rival doesn't. And the assured, obviously, is for the investors. They want to be able to rely on the numbers. So that's what they love. And if you look at the commentary that's gone back to the EU, to the IFRS and the SEC from investors and indeed corporates, a lot of it's been about being please get your act together with your colleagues in Europe and at the IFRS so we don't have three different standards against which to report. So so far IFRS and SEC have looked pretty close on climate. And indeed SEC has proposed that if you're a foreign filer, the IFRS reporting would be enough. So that that's quite optimistic. FRAG has looked a bit different, but I believe there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes to try and make IFRS and FRAG a bit closer. EFRAG is the European Financial Advisory Group, so the EU's advisory arm. So um, there, there is a danger that there will be divergence. The SEC will go through quite a political fight and then probably a court fight. So who knows what will come out of that. But there's also uh, the hope that the three entities under pressure from corporates and investors will get their acts together. And I have to say, when we were going through the process of merging. IRRC and SASB, we would sort of put out feelers to New Delhi, Beijing, Tokyo, just to make sure that we weren't heading off in some strange direction as far as that part of the world was. And the message was pretty consistent. If you Westerners can sort this out, within reason, we'll follow. So there is an opportunity for a global standard if the Western powers, if you like, can come to it. Who's in the lead? The EU has been at this a bit longer than anybody. So that, I think, goes without saying. And and in a way, SASB, which is now the IFRS's ISSB, has been doing it even longer. So if you wanted to see what the future looks like for the IFRS, it might be no harm to look at the SASB standards today. Just go online, put in a large company name, you'll see them. And if you want to see how matters might shape up from a more political organization, it's worth having a look at the EU. I suppose the big controversy in the EU right now is the EU has used the finance community as its main tool for implementing sustainability. That's a bit under pressure in the states now. Um, a lot of people signed up, a lot of banks signed up, and now they're hesitating a little bit more as they get backlash from individual states such as Texas.
0: Back to McKinsey a bit. 33,000 employees, and advisor to many, many of the world's most influential businesses and institutions. That's a huge responsibility and a huge opportunity, of course. So what are the keys to guide corporations to work for this sustainable agenda serving society?
1: For large corporations to espouse sustainability, some of them do it out of a sense of purpose. I mean, there are organizations like Patagonia who've always been set. Their founder has been very influential in directing them to essentially save planet Earth. That's the next big goal they have as a private organization. But most large corporations, they need to be shown how sustainability aligns with long-term economic value for it really to take off, because they don't see themselves as moral and social leaders. They see themselves, if they're good corporations, as people who need to align with the social norms and the laws that prevail, rather than lead them. Leading on uh, new laws and new social norms is, is the responsibility, they would say, I think rightly, of politicians. At the same time, they feel a strong responsibility to use their shareholders' money wisely. So, the big question they face is if I'm putting 10 or 100 million dollars into a project to increase diversity or reduce greenhouse gases in my production process, how do I explain the benefit to the company or at the very least the benefit to society of doing that? Because I know it's costing me 100 million dollars of input. Am I getting 100 million dollars for somebody? Ideally, for the company and for society, out the other side. So, I think that's probably the most important factor to help large corporations fully espouse sustainability. And there are a few ways of doing this. Impact accounting is one, because you can see there the value to society and to the company of a particular investment along a dimension of sustainability. And it doesn't take much to imagine that over time, the company, will find that the tax system or the regulatory system requires them to pay a cost if they are imposing costs on society. So that's one way of doing it. But having the economic argument in place so that the chief financial officers can sign off the cash in good conscience is probably the single most important thing to help large corporations espouse
2: fully espouse sustainability
0: rainer if you would be heading mckinsey today for example how could they serve a good agenda
2: we're actually doing a lot of great work with mckinsey right now so we are looking in the in the waste room for each of our sub-theme areas we have organized ourselves according to problems what problems are we going to solve and we talked earlier in some of the other podcasts about waste so waste is a huge problem both from a co2 emissions but also from a resource standpoint and a biodiversity standpoint. So we are working now with making the roadmap to a circular net zero economy in particular within the waste. So how do we go to an economy that doesn't have waste anymore? And there's so many new technologies, but you also have to change consumer behavior, a lot of the industry participants across industries need to think about circularity in a different way. And this thematic cuts across everything. So there's not one solution. It's not one industry. It's not the waste management industry that can fix this. The problem is a wicked problem. And I think we're doing some great work with McKinsey now where they are helping us because they are in all of these industries. They are exposed to a lot of what's happening. And sort of being able to pull that domain knowledge across many, many domains into a coherent sort of roadmap for what is the theory of change to get to that. That is something that will be very hard for Summa to do, even if we have many companies. And for each one of our companies, it's also harder to do. So I do think, actually, there is a lot of power in McKinsey domain knowledge, which they haven't realized before now, because these themes with decarbonization or the sustainability themes, they are cross-functional, they're cross-industry. And suddenly, if you have the power to really pull together all of that domain knowledge, which McKinsey has internally. Then you can accelerate some of these called the roadmaps to a more sustainable future. So that's one thing I'm thinking about that McKinsey should do more of.
0: Good advice. And uh, Connor, you're also the chair of um, IIRC, I International Integrated Reporting Council, and you've led a wave of uh, integrated uh, reporting to change and also to sustain a mindset change in uh, the behaviours for boards and also for executive teams. So what achievements or, or lessons learned would you like to share there?
1: it is about mindset change. Reporting in itself is useful, but what's more interesting about it is the change in behavior that it induces. And it induces that change in behavior because people suddenly see data that they haven't seen before, and they get to consider it, and they get to come to a viewpoint on it, and they spend time on it. So that's within the corporation. And then obviously they get the feedback from the investor community who looks at the same data or narrative and gives them a response. So it's all about changing behaviour, and it happens in two ways.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your work with uh, impact investment?
1: So it, impact, in my mind, has two elements to it. One is impact accounting, and the other is impact investing. So let me talk a little bit about both. Obviously, they're interrelated. But on impact accounting, I was fortunate to be part of a G7 working group, which has called at the beginning of this year for impact accounting. To be mandatory in three years time i think it's a bit optimistic actually i think it'd take at least five years but nonetheless that would require companies in the g7 world to be reporting on their impacts reporting on the externalities to society of their production process and of their products which would be quite dramatic because the outcomes can be quite dramatic there's one famous yogurt company for instance that makes about three billion euros a year of profit for its shareholders when you work out the cost to society of the 10% sugar in the yogurt that they make, it costs the world healthcare systems an estimated 3 billion euros a year to deal with it. So it makes 3 billion for its shareholders, but it then costs the world's healthcare system at 3 billion, which of course it doesn't pay for. Now, it does other good things as well. So it's it's not a net zero in that sense company. It also provides great employment to people and supports communities. But it it's a dramatic insight when you realize that 10% sugar for this company means that basically society pays a cost that's equivalent to its total profits. So that's why I think impact accounting is very revealing. Up to then, I knew that 10% sugar was worse than 9% and not as bad as 11 but I had no way of comparing it with anything else. So I'm optimistic that impact accounting will make a big difference. So that's the impact accounting side. Impact investing obviously wants to get good impact outcomes. So it needs impact accounting to see what's going on. But impact investing has actually become something that private equity predominates in. Large investors, large long-term investors now believe that companies that pay attention to impact are probably better long-term bets than companies that don't. They're still in the experimental phase. There isn't a huge amount of money gone into it because there isn't a huge amount of offer yet. There are not many companies like Sumo. There's actually no one likes Suma. Most of the others are large private equity firms that have a, an impact branch, whereas Suma is purpose-built, which I found very attractive. So they're beginning to experiment with impact investing, and they're mostly doing it through private equity. And I, I do ask them, well, what about big public companies? They need to be more conscious of impact. And to date, the answer I've got is, look, we as investors really have very little influence over public companies. We can put money in buy shares but there's no incremental capital going into impact we just buy the shares from somebody so there's else
2: room for an uh, activist public
1: uh, impact investor you know there may well be and there are some there's a large dutch pension fund which is trying it out subtly so you know some people are thinking about this but they do the investors despair of having enough influence over public companies and of course they can vote but to vote They then have to go through all kinds of hurdles with the SEC to make sure their vote isn't micromanaging the company. They can be stopped if it is. And then they have to get support from everybody else because they typically will only own six or 7% or maximum of a company, but usually about two or three. Whereas with private equity, they can give a firm a mandate to do impact. And if the firm doesn't deliver five years later when it's coming for its next fund, they won't re-up. So they feel they're in control because these are limited life funds and they get to vote again in five years' time. Now, private equity at this point in time isn't capable of taking on $100 billion companies. So a solution such as perhaps activism will need to be found to move large corporations along faster, I suspect. But impact investing seems to me the source of a whole new wave of growth for private equity. Just given the private equity structure works particularly well for investors, who despair of having influence in the public markets.
0: And just as a follow-up question to both those things, impact accounting and impact investing, why aren't there more companies than today applying impact accounting? And why don't we see more, so to say, some equities being born?
1: Well, they are starting to be born. It is a slow process. Remember, these large asset owners who have the cash, that often big pension funds or sovereign wealth funds, um, they are cautious because they have to justify everything they do to their beneficiaries. And so they tend to study things for a long time before they commit. In Summa's case, this is its third fund, so they can already see a track record, and therefore they can invest. So Suma has some very prominent LPs, such as GIC and CPP. Others are just about at the beginning of their journey. So it is a, it is a journey. Summa started earlier. And so you will see, I think, over time, more firms emerging. But they need to build up a track record to be convincing to these large LPs. So large money will only move gradually towards this new space, even if the LPs are increasingly convinced it's attractive. I don't know, Reino, you live this. I observe it. You've lived it. Does that reflect what you've seen?
2: Yeah. And I I think the interest, uh, especially from the investor LP side in pushing GPs and uh, into reporting more around impact. It's definitely there, and I think uh, it's for us. It's been easy to to because we've been focusing on companies that are net positive around sustainability, and we have been able to do it since the start. It's much harder if you have a large portfolio, and to retrofit uh, and get it into the reporting in all of your companies in the whole portfolio. So I do think there is an interest, but especially from the LP investor side, but I also see several large private equity firms wanting to to have better reporting on it. So, But as you're saying, it takes time to be comfortable that you're not committing to a standard which you really can't be able to enforce in your companies. How are we going to capture the data on some of these metrics? It's not trivial. And that's why it's, it's taking a little bit of, uh, of time as well. And then, uh, quite frankly, I do think there is too much greenwashing. There's a lot of sort of companies that want to go in that direction, but they never build the organization in, in a way to really have that filtered through everywhere. And then you report on what you can and what seems good. So there is still a bit of greenwashing. So I think what you've been doing on the reporting side, getting some common standards, it just makes it easier for everyone. It makes us be able to trust the reported numbers that is not only greenwashing and you only highlight what is positive, but uh, you hide what is not positive. And it's going to help the investor community um, and also the private equity firms and asset owners in knowing uh, what they should report to and, uh, and go in one direction. I mean, there's, there's tons of frameworks. So there's also confusion which framework should we use. So standardization, I think, is, is fantastic. So that's why I'm really sharing what you've been doing. I would just underline that. Uh, I've mentioned the
1: need to have a track record as an impact investor to get funding, but Rainer quite rightly points out that it is hard to measure these things right now. LPs, investors, know how to measure financial returns, (laughs) although it is complicated. But with impact returns, let's call it that, they know that the approaches are not yet mature. And so they're doubly cautious when they choose an impact investor because they tell me, they have to trust him because they could be greenwashed and that will be very embarrassing for them. So they are looking for good metrics and for people to report on these metrics. But in parallel, they're asking themselves the question, because these metrics aren't perfect, do I actually trust this group of men and women who are in front of me to do the right thing? Because I can't really completely pin them down on the metrics. And so they're very concerned about the topic that uh, Raina just mentioned about being greenwashed. It's bad for everyone, and it's very embarrassing for them in front of their beneficiaries if it happens.
0: Connor, from a helicopter perspective, what do you think the world needs most right now?
1: Well, if I had to pick one thing, it is, uh, I am worried about, as most people are, about the effects we're having on the climate and on biodiversity. It seems like the Industrial Revolution, which started in Britain in 1780, has finally caught up with this, because, of course, it expanded throughout the Western world. Now it's expanded into China. And... Like any system, I'm an engineer by background, ultimately you reach the limits of the system and it seems that we have reached some of those limits and we do have to act. Unfortunately, it's now being mixed with the polarization of society. Those who feel they're left behind tend to deny the authority of science as well as the authority of the state. They feel that there are conspiracies against them and they feel that the elites aren't serving them well. So we have this worrying mix of a need to do something on climate and probably a strong need to do something on society as well. So not just E, but also S. And then a group that have been left behind in Britain, in the United States, in France, where you saw the gilets jaunes, feeling suspicious of all elites, scientific and governmental, and not cooperating. So we're in a very tense situation, I feel. So the helicopter view worries, about for me anyway, worries about climate, but it also worries about large, disaffected parts of the population that aren't on board, even perhaps with believing in it, never mind doing something about it.
0: And for young people, what would be your advice to them now when they're about to make maybe choices in life and design their life and work?
1: Well, I would advise them to get more politically involved. Now, having said that, I'm not Politically involved myself, but they right now seem to rely greatly on their corporations to agitate for change or to react to change, which is fine. But ultimately, changing laws or societal norms is more the realm of elected politicians. So I would encourage them to spend more time trying to influence elected politicians and perhaps going out to vote if their voice is to be heard more strongly, rather than simply relying on pressuring corporates. They can pressure corporates if they wish, but I think they should use the other avenue.
0: So Rainier, what do you think should
2: be the main takeaway for people listening to this episode? I mean, for me, the interest here is that we need a common standard on reporting. There's two things we, we need. We need to have a goal. So where are we going? And that's why you know I really want all companies and everyone to set targets for where are we going and commit to those. And how do we know if it's just sort of a bullshit target sometimes in the far distant future? I mean, 2050 is uh, very far uh, ahead, and this is urgent. We need change to happen now. The only way you can be certain of things happening is if you measure and report on it and keep everyone accountable for it. So I'm hugely encouraged by, uh, by what's happening and what Connor has been describing, that we are getting to a common standard. So integrated reporting, SASB, now into IFRS. There is alignment happening between EU, IFRS, and SEC. So uh, the main takeaway is that there is reason to have faith in that within a short time frame, we'll actually get to some common standards we can measure if we are really on the right way or not.
1: If I could add, Rainier, to that, what I'd love to see next is politicians starting to impose costs on companies. The reporting is well and good. The mechanism by which the reporting makes change happen is that consumers, especially the younger generation, observes it and shuns companies that aren't doing well and supports companies that are doing well, either as consumers or decision makers or as employees. And that's a good mechanism. But I think politicians now need to stand up, and it'll be uncomfortable for them, and impose economic costs, taxes, call them what you like, on corporations that aren't. Behaving in a sustainable manner. And the reporting will help this, of course. You need the reporting to be able to do the taxing. But I think it will be necessary to impose real economic costs because right now we're just working on moral suasion. You know, if they report, they'll look at the number, they'll want to do better. And that will get us so far. But ultimately, I think the state will have to step in and either regulate or tax.
0: Thank you so much, Connor. Thank you, Rainer, for a great conversation, an important one to have.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Vesna.
0: This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa & Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see.